Welcome to BSD Talk number 184. It's Thursday, January 7, 2010. Or is that 2010? I guess that debate will never get old. Anyway, I just have an interview for you, so here it is. Today on BSD Talk, we're speaking with the main Dragonfly BSD developer, Matthew Dillon. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. So it's been a while since I've talked to you. I looked up our last interview, and that was in July 2008. And that was just before the Dragonfly 2.0 release. So we've had two, I don't know if you want to call them major releases since then, 2.2 and 2.4. Although I guess now we're up to 2.4.1, right? Uh, for the release, yeah. And yeah. 2.5 is the development branch. So at the risk of just sort of wandering through release notes, I'll ask the question, what's been going on since 2.0? A lot. <laughs> uh, let's see, what's the best way to categorize it? Well, certainly the the 64-bit work has has progressed immensely, and it's fairly stable now. Uh, we don't have 32-bit emulation support, so the 64-bit isn't really production ready, but it's definitely working well enough that we can do uh, bulk package source builds, uh, which we started doing um, as of the uh, the 2.4 release. Uh, we started doing bulk package source builds for 64-bit as well as 32-bit, so it's certainly progressing along those lines. Um, what are what are the the main events? I guess the the biggest ones would be uh, DevFS and Hammer and the AHCI support in terms of the the mainline release, and uh, a lot of that. Well, and MP stuff too. I mean, there's a whole laundry list of stuff that's been done. But if I were to take that in order, one of our Summer of Code, Google Summer of Code projects was uh, DevFS implementation from scratch, not a port. And that was done, and it was stabilized, and it made it into the 2.4 release. And it's a, very, uh, it's a very nice implementation. It will do things like it will automatically probe drives as they attach, so it will it will figure out the partitions, the slices and partitions, and, and bring up DevFS entries for that. Uh, it has access to the serial numbers that the drives report, which anything attached by ATA or uh, SCSI or AHCI uh, will report the drive serial number. Things attached by USB, it's kind of hit or miss. They usually don't. But what that means is for most booting uh, purposes, most attachment purposes, uh, we can now uh, access drives via their serial number, and it's really made a, it made a much bigger difference than I thought it would. Uh, so much so that as we were heading into the 2.4 release, we decided to uh, adjust the installer to actually install a system using the serial numbers for et cetera in et cetera fstab and so on and so forth as a default. So users would have you know so we could show something uh, to users installing a new system. Now, for people who aren't familiar with DevFS, this is in contrast to just propagating the dev directory with a bunch of possible devices that you assume that's right. you might have. That's right. And you know, all the major operating system uh, releases have done this. Uh, Linux has had this for a while. FreeBSD has done this. We've done this. And yeah, basically what it is, it's, it's getting rid of two things. It's First, it's getting rid of 
of device nodes in other file systems. So uh, there are all these other file systems, you know, UFS, uh, EXT2, whatever, uh, had to have shims in them to recognize uh, device nodes and then forward to another special file system to deal with them. And it, it's always been a shim. It's always been a little hokey. You always had to populate devices that didn't necessarily exist in the system uh, in your slash dev directory. Uh, and it's really nice to be able to get rid of that. So that was, uh, oh, let's see, there were two things. Uh, well, actually, I think I bundled both, <laughs> both in the same time. Uh, but the, the other thing that DevFS really gives you is this ability to dynamically create and destroy uh, device nodes in a, a file system accessible environment. So it's its own file system. Um, you can't create random files in it, but it's there to uh, organize and, and uh, display devices and allow them to be accessed. It allows things like, uh, for example, the serial number program to supply devices based on serial number. So you can access the device via its attach point, uh, say, you know, dev DA0, or you could also access the same device via its serial number, via uh, dev serial the serial number, and then, you know, various extensions based on, on what probe in terms of slices and partitions. So DevFS is a big deal. It allowed us to actually remove a lot of stuff from the other file systems. It allowed us to uh, optimize uh, the device access paths and, and really get rid of a lot of cruft and especially add features such as uh, as the serial number probing, uh, add features such as uh, totally dynamic uh, device attachment auto probing, so, uh, which goes hand-in-hand hand with some of the later driver work with the AHCI stuff. So yeah, DevFS is a really big deal. So, what let's, is AHC, uh, what is AHCI and what does that do yeah, for people? Let's do HCI and uh, what what HCI is is basically the new uh, ATA chipset standard. And uh, machines, uh, newer machines, basically implement HCI. If you go into BIOS, you usually have a choice: and do you want legacy IDE or do you want it to probe as HCI? Uh, operating systems uh, now and, and have for at least the last year and, and probably longer uh, understood HCI. We didn't have an HCI driver. Well, we had we had a crusty driver kind of built into the ATA driver port from FreeBSD, but we didn't have a native one. And uh, it turns out that what HCI gives you for chipsets that support it uh, and machines that support it is a much better native command queuing feature set and a more optimal way of dispatching device operations, basically. Far easier to deal with, far easier to probe, you know, far easier to deal with the ports as separate entities in terms of interrupt management and encoding the driver and performance. So around uh, just before the 2.4 release, actually fairly close to the 2.4 release, I actually wrote an AHCI driver. It was contemporary with the HCI driver, uh, FreeBSD was writing one at around the same time. Uh, we based our initial HCI driver off of a port from, uh, I'm sorry, I, I forgot whether it's NetBSD or OpenBSD, but uh, off of a port there, uh, they had a uh, primitive uh, HCI driver, and I basically took that as a base to get the chipset to probe, and you know, it basically all the nitty-gritty uh, hard stuff that that the stuff that's hard when you're writing a new driver is just the initial bootstrapping, you know, getting the thing to talk to, you. and that had already been done. So I was able to bring that in, and then I then I basically uh, rewrote it. 
so our AHCI driver is is effectively a ground-up implementation written basically directly for Dragonfly, and uh, we're able to implement pretty much all the features. The only the only feature I don't have implemented in our current HCI driver is uh, being able to do native command queuing through port multipliers, uh, which is a special feature that that requires an HCI chipset rev that I didn't have. But it does everything else, including uh, hot plug support, which I think is something that only the Linux driver really does well, and maybe the Solaris driver too. But that's, it turns out to be a fairly big deal. What the hot plug support in the HCI driver allows you to do is you know, basically just plug and unplug drives at your whim while the system is live without having to worry about uh, the operating system getting confused and crashing, uh, which is something that was always a problem with the old IDE interface. That It was virtually impossible with the old IDE interface, the ATAPI interface, to reliably attach and detach drives and not have, not have there be a risk of the system crashing. So uh, with the HCI driver and combined with DevFS and serial numbers, we now have this ability where we can plug a drive in to an eSATA port or an internal SATA port uh, on a machine that has <clears throat> HCI and have the operating system not only recognize it but automatically probe it, do all the attachment stuff, and then be able to mount a file system off of it. Now, isn't Hammer also starting to gain the ability to add and remove physical volumes to a hammer volume? Yeah, in, uh, in the current development branch, we have, uh, we've had the ability to add volumes for a while. We just uh, recently got the ability to remove volumes. It isn't uh, production ready yet. It's, it's fairly close. We still have to add the feature, uh, the ability to change the root volume. So right now, the remove capability works with uh, additional volumes, but not with the root volume. Uh, in a multi-volume hammer file system. Uh, but we've made great progress. Uh, it does basically all the work that has to be done to remove a volume, which is to migrate all the data that's on that volume to other available volumes uh, before removing it from uh, the list of volumes associated with that file system. And all this work with DevFS Dev and AHCI, that does have some implications for people who are doing upgrades from previous releases? Uh, for anyone with with a machine that does HCI, then it's uh, yeah, it's like night and day. HCI with its NCQ, with its native command queuing, uh, really improves, allows us to improve the uh, performance. And a lot of this work was done uh, because I needed a way to really be able to test Hammer in a in a working environment without the drivers and the uh, and also SMP, that is the, the big giant lock getting in the way. Uh, both of those issues were getting in the way of performance testing on Hammer. So it really all dovetails into the file system work. I think I read somewhere that also if you switch over to AHCI, you can end up with driver name differences, which could affect your mount points. Yeah, that's true. Uh, AHCI uses the, uh, the SCSI layer. So a drive that probed as AD0 before would now probe as, uh, say, you know, DA2. Uh, but it turns out that since DevFS now probes serial numbers and uh, you can access drives by serial number, then in fact, it, what you really want to do is no longer specify the uh, attachment point in your FSTAB. You want to specify a serial number path. 
And uh, in fact, what we found is when we do it by serial number, we can move the drive around uh, between HCI and silicon image and even traditional IDE attachment points and not have the system really care. You know, it boots the drive either way. It doesn't care anymore. And uh, it's actually a very cool feature. It kind of mitigated the issue of um, the attachment point name changing. That's great. So if you were to install 2.4 right now, would you get Hammer and all these features or are there features that you have to flip on? Uh, no, you get them. They're they're in. Uh, they're actually in the 2.4 release. Um, they're more fleshed out in the current head release, of the current development version. And our next release, I think, is going to be March. Uh, we shifted our releases uh, ahead by two months to get the releases out of the Christmas holiday area, which the time frame, which which wasn't working very well the last few releases. So our next release is going to be March, and and everything that's in development version now will certainly you know be in that release, and it will be quite stable, I think. And I think it was in the 2.2 release when Hammer was considered production ready. Yeah. And at this point, are you just sort of polishing the a fixed set of features, or are you continuing to add new features, or are there aspects to Hammer that you still haven't implemented? Uh, no, there are quite a few new features that are coming in and uh, more on the way. So we already talked about uh, DevFS a bit and, and performance testing. Uh, one of the things uh, that we've done to kind of flesh out the performance testing was to clean up and make MP safe uh, the file open in read paths, uh, well, primarily the read path. So uh, anything that doesn't actually have to go to disk, anything that's uh, able to go through the buffer cache on a hammer mount uh, is now MP safe. In terms of the file system itself, uh, we're now up to Hammer version 4. We changed the directory layout a bit. Um, I forget whether that was version 2 or I think that was version 2. We uh, completely redid the snapshot management. It, it used to be that snapshots were stored as soft links in the file system itself, uh, but that created issues when you're mirroring the file system and you have a different uh, policy on the target mirror than you had on the, on the source. So the snapshots have been moved to metadata. The new directory layout greatly improved directory access performance uh, after reblocking. And then in version 4, we, I started working on the flush paths. One of Hammer's weaknesses uh, historically has been that if you, if you have to flush the file system, you do a sync or an f-sync, uh, it was a fairly expensive thing to do. Uh, and that's because Hammer had to basically partition the data it was writing to disk into three different buckets and do a disk synchronization command in between those three buckets. So it had to do two disk sync commands uh, in order to do a flush, or and, and an f-sync involves a flush, so it's the same thing. Version 4 removes one of those. It removes the need to update the volume header uh, when doing an f-sync or sync by making the undo FIFO completely self-contained. So uh, when, if you have a system crash and reboot, uh, Hammer's able to figure out where the start and end of the undo FIFO on the media is uh, basically by probing it instead of having to look at the volume header. Uh, and that's a fairly significant improvement in performance. It's about uh, one of the two major performance improvements that are intended there. Uh, the second one is the implementation of a redo FIFO on media to improve F-Sync. Uh, that hasn't been done yet, 
probably won't make it into 2.6, but it would certainly be in at some point after that. Uh, and the idea here is that if you're a database and you're you know, doing database updates, you're doing a lot of F-syncing. And we, we found that in particular with you know, MySQL. If you're doing a performance testing with transactions, well, each transaction is having to F-sync uh, the database files on disk. And it, it creates a real issue for Hammer because F-sync is still fairly expensive. A redo FIFO uh, on media basically allows the database uh, write operations to be stored in the redo log, and that way the F-sync only needs to sync the redo log. It doesn't need to sync the metadata or data in the real location on the media, uh, which de would devolve F-sync into a single write, which is about as optimal as you can get. Uh, that isn't in yet, but it, but it will be. The, uh, the improved undo FIFO is in an operational, and, um, and that has already uh, shown some pretty good results. And along with uh, Hammer performance improvements, I guess there's been some work on NFS also? Uh, yes. The client-side NFS implementation, uh, inherited from FreeBSD, has always had this issue uh, where any read-ahead RPCs or any async BIOs uh, like, say, when the kernel is trying to flush the buffer cache, it, it tries to flush all that data essentially asynchronously. Those had to be doled out to uh, separate NFS IOD uh, processes. And one of the big issues with that, apart from the contention between all those processes trying to talk to socket, would be that the uh, requests would wind up going over the wire, over uh, the network, out of order. Uh, because those separate async operations were not serialized um, over the wire. Those processes were competing against each other. And what would happen is, uh, you know, let, let's say you're, you're reading a large file over NFS <clears throat> and you want to pipeline it. And so you expect to get, you know, full network bandwidth out of that file because you have read-ahead. But what would happen is that some of the async read-aheads would wind up out of order, and it would take the, the next block you want, and it would put it way the hell you know, down the line, maybe six requests down from the ones already queued, and your file read would stall until all six requests came in, and then finally the block you wanted came in. So what, what I did, um, and numerous operating systems have improved um, their NFS. I think FreeBSD did a run on theirs, too. Uh, but I think uh, we really, I did the whole kitchen sink for the client side. I removed all the uh, individual threads we were using to generate these asynchronous requests, and I devolved it all down to just two kernel threads, one for reading from the socket, one for writing, and I asynchronized the entire RPC uh, mechanism. So in Dragonfly, uh, an NFS client is now really capable of queuing upwards of, you know, 40, 50. There's really no limit for the number of RPCs that can be uh, live on the wire uh, waiting for a response. And on top of that, uh, since there's only one thread doing the writing to the socket, uh, the RPCs are properly serialized in, in the order in which they were queued. So large linear reads from a file are properly uh, serialized in terms of the data stream coming back, and you don't get stalls anymore. Uh, so that's a, a fairly big deal for NFS. It improved performance uh, quite a bit. All operating systems have pretty much gone to, well, defaulting at least, to a TCP mount, and we made that change also. So NFS 
mounts are now using TCP by default instead of UDP. Uh, and there are various reasons for that, but the, the, the most obvious one is that with UDP, timeouts were handled on an individual RPC-by-RPC RPC basis and never took into account other RPCs which might be queued on the server. And so what you would wind up with is even on a totally perfect network, you would have RPCs with a UDP NFS mount timing out and, and issuing retries even though there was no actual packet loss. Uh, simply due to latencies on the server, uh, due to other RPCs being ahead of that particular request. So that those are, that, in a nutshell, that's uh, what we've done with NFS. And is this NFS work primarily to help Dragonfly be a good Unix citizen, or is NFS also part of your single instance cluster work? Or... No, NFS is not part of the cluster work. We're no, going to be doing a totally uh, separate implementation. N NFS just doesn't have the transactional capabilities. Um, although, you know, NFS v4 might, but, but what we're going for with the cluster work is something uh, well beyond uh, what NFS v4 would give us. So we're not even worrying about NFS v4. Now, it was just something that, had, that needed to be done. It, it became low-hanging fruit, uh, and I just uh, pushed into it and got it done in a week. Uh, and it's nice. It's a nice thing to have to have you know reasonable NFS performance. So where are you on your list of milestones towards that that clustered operating system? Well, in terms of milestones, nothing really has changed in the last year. Uh, we've greatly improved Hammer's performance, which is kind of a uh, it's a prerequisite to this. The well, it's no, no, that's not true. We we have we have made progress. Hammer's FIFO stuff. Uh, the undo FIFO and the, the redo support that's going in is going to be absolutely necessary to improve performance uh, once we get into the cluster stuff and have to do quorum synchronization, um, quorum transactions, uh, because those quorum transactions actually have to wait for the data to get on media. So I've been kind of working around the edges, but the, the mainline cluster protocols uh, haven't really been developed yet. <clears throat> and that's one of the goals for... Uh, 2010 is to really get moving on that thing for me you know that i would somehow in my mind dream of having is a, a dragonfly appliance which is actually running samba you know and it's sort of a put a bunch of these dragonfly appliances all over my my organization at various offices so that i have all these real-time instant backups you know, <laughs> right, right now we're using some hp storage servers running uh windows server 2003 that are using, uh, you know, a, a synchronization queue. And then when that link goes down, you know, the queue fills up, the disk fills up, everything oh, goes wrong, yeah, you know. And so I'm dreaming someday of being able to you know, <laughs> expose a file system to my Windows clients, but have Dragonfly right. and Hammer underneath there. But you I can, have to you wait can run a while. Samba now. I mean, it, it, it works now. It's just, it's not an enterprise solution now. But, you know, I'll tell you, the, uh, the mirroring features in Hammer are very well fleshed out, and they work, they work extremely well. Um, for a long time, I was using CPDupe. Well, I still am to, to some degree, but I wasn't using Hammer's mirroring features for my off-site backup, and actually, in the last month, uh, we finally got that switched over. Uh, and it, it wasn't because I didn't want to. It was because the, my off-site machine is a, a shared Linux box, so I couldn't run Dragonfly on it. Uh, but I wound up running a QMU, of all things, on that box and attached a two-terabyte disk to it, which is kind of a, a bit funny when you think about it. You have a two-terabyte disk attachment in a QMU doing software emulation. 
<laughs> to run Dragonfly and Hammer. Uh, but it works. And for the offsite, I basically am using now uh, Hammer's bandwidth limited mirroring stream. That is the ability to set up a continuous mirroring stream and say, okay, don't use more than this amount of bandwidth. And, you know, it'll get behind a little and then it'll catch up and it doesn't really care. And so it's really uh, an effort-free way of doing backups, you know, combined with the uh, the snapshot capability. Uh, there are a lot of people, I think that one of the, the, the sticky points in Dragonfly, the, the thing that will keep people uh, using Dragonfly is Hammer, is the snapshot and the mirroring uh, and backup capability. And I think also I read, I, not, I haven't used Hammer in a little while when I was testing it out. I do remember that the sort of, the way you got it snapshots was a really, really long string. And I think I read that, that they've shortened that up now so that you can get at some, um, some of your snapshots by a, a shorter string. Well, no, not really. The snapshots are still a long string, but really you don't have to access it via this, uh, this magic soft link string that we have. Um, the snapshots are, are managed in uh, VAR Hammer now, and really you just CD into that, CD uh, into uh, the appropriate soft link that has the magic string embedded in it, and you're in the snapshot. We also have a convenient utility to access the history of, of any given file, uh, which can also be used. I, I personally prefer to just CD into you know, VAR Hammer and CD into the snapshot that way. Yeah, what I had done was put a snapshot in my uh in my login profile <laughs> so on machine every time i logged in it made a snapshot so i could no. <laughs> go back you to don't what... really need to do that specifically i mean <laughs> yeah. the automatic snapshots yeah. i think most people prefer just using the automatic snapshots the fine grain stuff is useful if you've lost work mm. you know very recent work like you know you're working on something an hour ago and you accidentally removed the file and you want to get it back uh, then you go and you use the undo utility to get access to the fine grain uh, snapshots. And how are you feeling about some of your earlier design decisions that led you to require reblocking? Is is that still you know working out as a as a reasonable design decision? Uh, yeah, the reblocking is absolutely working out. Uh, that turned out to be a very good decision. The only issue with uh, a discontensive operation uh, like reblocking is really more of an I/O scheduling issue. So, uh, for example, a standard hammer mount, it will spend uh, five minutes a day reblocking, you know, via uh, the standard cron jobs. And the, the problem with that is that without an IO scheduler, that will saturate the disk and access, normal accesses to the disk while the reblocking is going on uh, will be slowed. Uh, so one of our, uh, one of our uh, committers is actually working on an IO scheduler side project that will remove that obstacle, that will basically allow uh, reblocking and pruning and other uh, heavyweight hammer-related operations to run without impacting uh, a production system's performance. But the, as a design decision, it turned out to be a very good decision uh, for several reasons, not the least of which being that it made the, uh, the volume remove feature, uh, the ability to remove a volume, actually very easy to implement. It turned out that all we really needed to do to have the ability to remove a volume from a hammer file system uh, was just code up some stuff so new allocations would not come from that volume and then reblock. And the reblocker would move all the data on that volume to other volumes. And, you know, that's pretty much it. 
uh, is a little more complex than that, but but uh, effectively the reblocking gave us this utterly trivial uh, way of moving data between volumes. And are you aware of any people porting Hammer to other operating systems? Oh, there have been nibbles. Um, mostly people want me to port it, <laughs> uh, which I don't really have time to do. Uh, there is, uh, I think, uh, one of our committers uh, who's a professor, he has a student that's doing a, a Linux port, I believe. You know, basically it's one of those things that, where people want to play with it, and they end up doing so in uh, VirtualBox or QMU or, or something like that. When really the design of the file system, it's not it's not really designed to operate in a virtual box type environment. It's designed to operate on real hardware. But we'll see how things go on on uh, that. I guess if people do want to try it, it is getting easier and easier. Your live DVD has uh, an X environment now, and you have a bare bones uh, USB thumb drive live and installer. So shouldn't be too hard to to find a way to test it out. Uh, yeah, uh, the USB stick hard drive image has become very popular. It, it will probably, uh, my guess is that USB, it will replace CD-ROMs uh, in terms of booting new operating systems in the next few years. It's only in the last, you know, like one or two years where BIOSes have really cleaned up their ability to boot from a USB drive. But most new machines these days can do it, uh, and, you know, basically just looks like a hard drive. Well, I think that's about uh, what I can think of for the list of things that's been going on. I don't know if you have any other uh, well, updates me, for the Dragonfly users. Let me go through my list. I think we covered most of it. Uh, we renamed our uh, 64-bit architecture from AMD64 to x86 underscore 64, mainly to try and improve uh, package source builds. I think all the BSDs pretty much use AMD64's architecture name. In Linux, it's mixed, but Linux seems to be leaning towards x86-64. So the package set, it seems to be leaning towards using x86-64. Well, we have done, actually have done some fairly significant uh, removal of the big giant lock. It's still in the VM system, but it's been removed from the name cache lookup. So file name lookups are now MP-safe. And it's been removed from the read path uh, when you when you're using a hammer mount. So we're making progress there. It's not it's not priority number one. It's more like you know priority number four or five. We've done uh, numerous architectural changes uh, internally. Uh, we had a per CPU timer extraction, fine grain timer extraction, for uh, kernel drivers to use. Uh, and we actually uh, had that move to using the uh, local APIC timers, which are per CPU timers. So that was a fairly significant, a significant improvement in our uh, kernel uh, timer and timeout support handling. Everything else, I mean, there's been a lot of work, um, but I think we've covered the, the big ticket items fairly well. And so what's up? Next, what are you looking forward to in 2.6, at least for your well, personal... Well, for me, well, 2.6 is pretty much going to be everything that we've discussed, um, since that's coming up in just two months. So we aren't going to have much time to pack in anymore. It's certainly going to be very stable. It will probably be more stable than 2.4. Probably, well, 2.4 was fairly stable, but not quite as stable as 2.2. 2.6 is going to be more, pro, 2.6 will probably be our most stable release yet, uh, which is, I, I think, uh, 
fairly important. I've been trying to maintain stability throughout all the releases. When we're talking stability, we're not necessarily talking how often it crashes, but more how often you change APIs or your Hammer file system versions? No, actually, I was talking how often crashes. Ah. Um, (laughs) 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 Um, We've been able to maintain fairly good stability throughout all the releases, but basically my opinion on operating systems is that first and foremost, you can't crash. Uh, It's it's been uh, kind of a mantra of mine pretty much forever, probably from the time when I was doing um, microcomputer work and, you know, we would do these telemetry systems and, well, those, those can't crash. <laughs> um, so they would run for, you know, two, three, four years plus and the only, uh, the only time they would get rebooted is if uh, they had to disconnect the uh, backup battery. So uh, that's that's a major mantra of mine, and that's really it's really one of the reasons why the S and P work is, has been slow and steady instead of uh, faster paced. I mean, I would have liked it to be and have been faster paced, but my preference, given the choice, is slow and steady and don't crash. So yeah, that, that's a big deal to me. I, there's no point having cute and cool features if you know the system crashes. I'm sure the users appreciate that that perspective. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for taking some time to fill us in on what's been going on in Dragonfly BSD, and and I hope uh, people will take a good look at it and and try it out. Great. Well, thank you for the interview. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 184.